Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy, mountain bikers. Thanks for being here, and welcome to episode 179 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here, as always, to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get out on the trails, keep you stoked and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks so much for tuning into the podcast and thanks for listening to the show. Have you ever thought what it takes to be a privateer mountain biker? Chasing the EWS or chasing the UCI, whatever you're interested in. You know, you're funding your plane tickets, you're buying your event tickets, you're paying for accommodation, you're paying for food, you're paying for fuel, all these expenses. It takes a lot of dedication, a lot of hard work, a lot of money and a lot of passion to get you there. To follow the world tour, to do what you love, it's maybe been your dream for a long time. So why do you do it? Well, in this week's podcast, we're chatting to a young man that is just doing that. He's left full-time employment to follow his dreams, to give this EWS thing a go and to get on the circuit and, and race as much as he can over the 2021 season. I first heard about Fergus from Daniel on last week's podcast, who is one of the co-founders of the Dirt Fund Project. And Fergus was lucky enough to get funded a £1,000 from the Dirt Fund Project. So it was only natural that I get him on the show, have a chat to him about that, have a chat about how he's funding this dream, how sponsors help, and obviously chat to him about his past racing results. And this guy's fast, right? This guy rides a bike, he's skillful, he's fast. He's going to do really well on the EWS. So I chat to him about all that, how you go about that, how you get involved, all that good stuff. Now, if you've been into mountain biking for a while, or you're just a beginner, the racing probably has your attention. You know, it's a big part of the whole thing, the whole industry. And it is very interesting. And if you're not interested in the racing now, you probably will be down the line a little. So we chat to Fergus about all that, about why he enjoys racing and how he's going to give this a go. So without further ado, let's get Fergus on the show. Let's get into it and let's find out more about the life of a privateer racer. Hi, Fergus. Third time luck in the intro, bro. I'm sorry about that. But welcome to MTB Tribe Podcast. How's things this afternoon? Yeah, thanks for having me, Gareth. And uh, yeah, it's all good this afternoon. Um, just, you know, just finished up some training this morning. And uh, yeah, no, the sun seems to have come out. And yeah, it's, it's all good. Lockdown's obviously happening. But yeah, we're working through it. Good stuff, mate. Good stuff. Good attitude to have. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the show because we've got loads to chat about. You're, you're a privateer. You race EWS. Um, and we'll get into all that. And we're going to chat about the Dirt Fund project, all that kind of stuff. Awesome, awesome stuff. But first of all, I watched a pink bike video with you and a sty- stylish UK trail shredding in Bristol. Dude, that was a cool movie. When did you do that? Thanks. Yeah. Um, so that kind of came out of the first lockdown really um i just got a new bike from santa cruz the tall boy um sort of like a ultra short travel but like really sort of aggressive geometry bike and Mm. i wanted to i I rode it around it's just so much fun so i came up with the concept with you know the racing being put on hold why don't i do a video 
um sort of local to bristol um so i i sort of messaged jacob gibbons um and just said to him like look should we you know should we do something and he was you know he didn't have the videoing of the ews on at the time and yeah it just worked out really well we um went and dug some of the spots so one of the local trail areas is is in bristol is belmont trails um and the guys there just do some like insane work like the trails are just incredible um so i went up there and did a bit of digging because you know you gotta gotta help out to you know help out with the mm-hmm. digging before you go and ride these spots and uh yeah like shot the video and it was sort of first time doing something you know sort of really professional production style thing um and yeah so got that done I think it was around June time, just as the sun was coming out, and um, we shot it over like two, two to three days, and it was mm. yeah, super fun, and the bike was amazing, and yeah, just I was really happy with how it came out, really. Yeah, um, it is very, very cool, and I'll put it in the show notes for anybody that wants to check it out. It's definitely worth a watch. Had you done something like that before, or was that your first time doing anything like that? Um. I've done a few bits of uh, like like videoing and uh, like video projects and stuff before. Kind of, re- I actually really enjoy it. It's one of the, like the things I really take a lot of passion in. Really, is doing the, you know, getting the really cool shots and trying to push myself on on video. But uh, yeah, nothing to sort of. I would say nothing to that level of um, sort of production scale. I guess we mm. had um you know follow cams we had drones we had you know crazy expensive cameras that i was jumping <laughs> over like jacob is like as committed as it gets for the shot as i've ever seen he had like a brand new camera that he was trying out and like i think it was the first shot he just put the camera on the takeoff of the jump and was like yeah just send it and i was like looking at this camera just scared scared so bad that i was gonna break it but uh yeah no it was uh really cool to sort of work with someone who has you know he's he's done some amazing things he worked on the death grip movie with brendan and he's uh he definitely knows his stuff and sort of he helped guide me through and made me look good so that was that was what we like yeah happy days man no it's it's very very cool movie um you say that the tall boys short travel what travels has it got so it's 120 at the back and I have it set up 130, although I know a lot of people have used it with like sort of put a 140 fork to sort of make it more of like a one bike does all. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky enough. I've also got my mega tower, which I race on, which is sort of that's 180, 160. Yeah. Um, so I sort of wanted to keep the tall boy a sort of real short travel weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you running 29ers on it? Yeah, 29ers uh, for all yeah all my bikes at the moment, actually. Yeah. Um, I was quite early to convert to that. I was probably 2016, I think, I got my first 29er. Mm. Um, it was a YT Jeffsy, actually. Um, I bought it. like it, That was the first bike I raced the EWS on. It was 140 mil front and rear. Wow. And, yeah, like just committed to the big wheels quite early um because i thought i i you know i did the maths on it and was like well it all kind of makes sense and i there was a lot of talk at the time about how they didn't they were really hard to maneuver and corner and you know they were really hard to generally ride Hmm. but i figured maybe a little bit arrogant of myself but i figured that i could 
you know it might my, my skills would i'd be able to sort of learn to maneuver it and learn to be able to ride it as as well and the sort of the where i was lacking at the time was in probably the the fitness area of things and uh so you know having that extra rolling speed um was gonna sort of uh, mm. i guess work in my favor um but yeah and it, you know ever since i've not really looked back i I know there's a lot of talk about the mullet setups at the moment and yes. I can't say it's something I've tried yet. I'm definitely uh, going to be trying it over sort of the next couple of weeks to months just before the race season, see what it's like. But to be honest, I can't, I haven't really got any issue with the 29er front and rear as it is. So, mm. you know, mm. I've noticed any problems. I guess it'll be something I'll have to try and see how it goes. Yeah. Is that tall boy got a flip switch on it? Can you, can you stick a, 27 in the rear so it's got the all well most of the santa cruz bikes both both my uh my mega and my tall boy the tall boy has a high low setting and also a short and long setting in the back um so you can adapt the bb height so you could put it in the high setting and then put a 27.5 in the back would probably be how i would go about it if i was gonna mullet the setup yeah Um, it's it's interesting the reason i asked you about the travel on the high boy was because uh the tall boy sorry it was because i recently rode a, a 2021 nuke periphery actor yep and it's 140 in the front 130 in the rear um 29er and i never really liked 29ers to be honest okay. i'm old school i'm coming from 26 inch right so i'm yeah. old school <laughs> but i'll tell you uh, sorry i'll tell you what Fergus, see when I jumped on that reactor with the short travel in the 29, see about two or three minutes in, it didn't feel like a 29er. It was so different to anything I've ever read. It was such a such a good bike. Yeah, I think I think they've definitely figured it out. I think a lot of the sort of the way they've 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 worked they've worked things out is through making the seat tubes um a lot steeper, which has then allowed them to make the rear ends a bit shorter on the bikes yeah the rear ends coming shorter and then all this um you know these new shorter rakes on the forks and stuff it's basically brought the wheelbases of the bikes back in line with something similar to um you know a, a 27.5 bike so mm. th- this whole sort of myth that i think was uh, you know when they first came out was you know uh, of maneuverability and fun and all of that kind of thing um they've sort of you know co- like worked it out now and as i say like i have so much fun on that bike that's probably my go-to bike whenever i go out riding you know yeah. um yeah. training rides it's it's just they can do so much now i'm sure you found that on that reactor you know like the travel they, the, the bikes definitely outperform the tr- what the sort of um what the common notion of a short travel bike would mm-hmm. be um yeah, so I I love it. It's awesome. Yeah, one twenty, one thirty, and yeah, twenty nine er wheels, and it's a whole load of fun. <laughs> yeah, it, it's crazy. Like because I was always in the defense, you know, if I was buying a new bike, will I go twenty seven point five? Will I go twenty nine? Who knows? A lot of the brands will probably be cutting twenty seven point five relatively soon, except for specific frame sizes, all this kind of thing. But you see, once I jumped on that reactor, I'm so old, man. I've, yeah. And yeah. and the short travel suits. I'm not doing big stuff like you, you know, really steep, steep EWS stuff. And the the trails that I would normally ride, my kind of locals and stuff. The one the one forty travels perfect. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people. I, I it's, it's something I I do I I understand, but I do also at the same time kind of 
feel like people, if they just took a bit of a risk and tried these shorter travel bikes, they'd be much happier. Like everyone seems to have lots of people go for these long travel bikes for doing, you know, I, I grew up in the Surrey Hills in, in the, in the Southeast of England and, you know, the trails there, there's, you know, even the hardest of trails don't warrant more than a 120, 130 bike. Mm-hmm. Um, but lots of people, you know, are sat there on big mega towers or, you know, whatever it is, they're on these big long travel enduro bikes and, you know, you're still going to have fun, but as you, as you say, you know, it doesn't really warrant it and actually getting the mileage in, you've got a lighter bike, you've got a more fun, playful bike if you go for the shorter travel. And I, I, for me, you know, that's where having this short travel bike just makes all the other trails that would normally be a bit of a slog on the big bike. It makes them fun again. Yeah, cool, man. No, it's amazing the way technology's going and stuff. It's, it's unbelievable, really. And, you know, that that Nook Pro 5 was, was, it was four grand. It retailed for four grand, so it wasn't a cheap bike by any means. But, you know, I don't think I would ever spend that on a bike personally, but I could feel the quality of the bike i could feel every pound worth of that ride you know what i mean yeah yeah exactly i mean yeah bikes uh you know bike prices I, i'm definitely definitely with you on you know bike prices being you know definitely on the high end of the scale um uh, but the the thing is you are getting the performance back out of these bikes yeah. i think that they you know the the technology that's involved in you know all the suspension the dropper posts the all the head angles and all of that kind of research that goes in, you are now getting back into the bike. And as you say, you can really feel that sort of every pound of the bike being repaid in sort of performance and fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's great. It's great. It's great to see. It's great to be involved at this time, you know? Yeah. Um, um, now let's get into your background. Cause I want to know, how you get into mountain biking what what kind of pushed you in the the mountain biking direction um i i guess i i did a lot of skateboarding when i was younger um sort of talking we're talking i don't know six seven eight years old or whatever i did a lot of skateboarding and my mum used to take me down the local skate park and sit there for hours while i hit the deck uh, <laughs> on the concrete um and i always you know, I enjoyed skateboarding, but then, you know, naturally you look at all the teenagers in the skate park and lots of them were on BMXs at the time. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and then I, I think my mum took me out over to a, to a friend's house and I was there and his, his older brother, um, had just got back from going mountain biking. And I thought, I don't know. I didn't think anything of it, but I saw his mountain bike. I think it was a specialized rock copper. And I was like, that is so cool. Um, <laughs> and it was at the local, uh, uh, it turned out there's a local mountain bike park called pork, which I'm sure if you've watched, uh, PT's videos and stuff, he actually, they used, they used to race like a national downhill mm, there mm. years and years ago. Um, anyway, and my, it was literally five minutes down the road. So my mum took me, um the following week um on my little bmx um and yeah there were just loads of like dirt is a dirt dirt jumps and um all of that lot and there was a big they used to hold a national four cross there um so i remember riding down the track and then i, I went up a couple of times to watch the four cross races 
um yeah and that's so I guess where that's where the passion came from mm-hmm. um I didn't really ever I didn't really commit fully to mountain biking though probably until I was around you know the fifth like 14 15 where I guess like the bug properly set in um I did a lot of other sports my dad was really into rugby so I had rugby on Sundays and then played played rugby at school um and did uh, also played squash as well a lot um <laughs> did all sorts of sports like my dad was mm-hmm. in, just trying to get me into everything really and that was you know really fun um but yeah I, I, so I think I did my first my first race was when I was 16 um and I, I just got I, I you know kind of jumping a bit forward but yeah got a got a downhill bike did my first race um at Pork and I used to race like that was pretty much where I rode all summer like every time I go on the summer holidays from school I go to this place my mum would drop me off in the morning and she'd pick me up at the end of the day having probably consumed five monsters and two pot noodles or something throughout the day for the athletes oh yeah that was literally I lived off of like I fully embraced monster energy like Sam Hill for me was like the champion and then PT as well obviously monster as well and I was just like so bought into like that whole if you drink energy drinks are going to be really really good and I'd drink those and tell myself I had loads of energy and <laughs> obviously uh the reality is something different but uh <laughs> yeah it, that was yeah I just loved it just having having fun on my bike really I was on a little XC bike for pretty much yeah when I was from yeah from 10 through to yeah 14 15 I was on a giant XC bike and I broke it god knows how many times my dad eventually ended up putting a I think I had a Saint Mech on a triple ring front uh, bike, so it didn't even work. Like the shit, I didn't even have the shifter didn't even work on the front. Yeah. Um, but purely because every time my dad put a long gauge mech back on the bike, I'd snap it within a week because I'd have gone and hit a tree or something and, <laughs> you know, gone out with my mates into the woods and just kind of smashed it up. So, but that was, uh, so he spent his life fixing those, I think. Um, but yeah, it was all good. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's into it really. And like, you know, you get into the downhill thing first. Was that just because enduro wasn't about at that time, or was it the guys you were looking at on on the media circuit and, and the pros at that time, like Sam Hill, etc.? Those guys were all racing downhill at that time. Is that why you mainly get into the downhill scene? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, as I say, I started off, they had like a, they had dirt jumps when I was, that was sort of the first thing I did. It was just all I consider. I didn't consider them dirt jumping in the sort of more common sense. It was literally, they were, you know, dirt, literally dirt jumps. And I was going yeah. there and doing that, um, had loads of fun on the jumps. Um, and then I think it was, yeah, as I say, I used to watch the four cross and that was always really cool again, just you know guys racing against each other and doing the doing the jumps and that was really cool but then at the same place the the downhill was really big and I remember seeing a guy on like an orange it was a bright pink orange patriot 66 or something I think it was and it was so it just looked amazing it had the gray fox 40s and I just remember being like these are insane like this bike just looks ridiculous it looked like a motocross bike and yeah they, yeah like jumping into it was all just jumps to flat back then like there weren't these sort of like you know nice nice landings it was just guys pulling up off of lips going really far and I just thought that was so cool um so I think that was what kind of got me into it and yeah like enduro like 
the XC side of things just didn't interest me. I really wasn't bothered about the Lycra kind of side of things, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, my, you know, my couple of my friends, we all used to sit down and watch, uh, I think it was the, the collective seasons. And I'm, I dread to think, I mean, I wish someone had sort of recorded the number of times I watched that film, but I must have watched that movie on repeat. I don't know. So, so, so many times. That was like my inspiration for years. Um, And it was just, yeah, I I guess just at the time it was like, that was cool. Um, I always liked the adrenaline sport. So I guess I didn't really ever consider cross country as an adrenaline sport, which I know now is like, was quite naive. Um, Mm. I see what those guys do and it's insane. But um, yeah, enduro just wasn't about then. It was just, it was kind of downhill dirt jumps or, cross country um and so yeah just downhill was the natural direction i kind of went in yeah um, and i know i know surrey's got a real good scene and has had for a long time um i've had a couple of guys on the podcast from surrey and stuff and um seems to be really active there really vibrant scene around there um like when you went to your first race was it with a bunch of mates or what made you actually get, get into the the race side of things um i I think it was probably my dad. I think I can probably thank my dad for that. He's always been, he's always pushed me to, you know, if I'm going to do a sport or if I'm going to do an activity, that I should always do it to like the best of my ability. And, you know, it should be, you know, you should, you should properly try, you should try hard to be the best you can be in whatever sport you're doing. Um, and so I think he saw that I was really enjoying the mountain biking and I like really had a passion for it. And, he just saw at the local place that I rode that there was a race. And I think a couple of the guys that I rode with had entered the race. And my dad was like, well, why don't you give that a go? Um, so, yeah, I entered it. I think it was a tenner. And we had um, <laughs> we had those like cardboard dinner plate um, like, <laughs> uh, number boards. Which yeah. really cool. Like we literally, I, like, I remember, I think I was number like 100 and 104 or something. Um, and yeah, we it was like a 30 second trail i think the race was like a 30 second race so it really was like not you can't it's hard to call it a downhill race when it's only like 30 seconds but that's Mm. pretty much what we had um and yeah i just i entered the race i think i came sixth off the top of my head i think my first ever race i came sixth um and i think that was like almost gave me the bug more than if i'd won because I was close to winning, but not like I, I was close enough that it was realistic, but it wasn't winning. So it, it wasn't like a kind of I knew I needed to work on it and I knew I needed to, you know, train and work out how to get faster. And the only way I was going to do that was, was by riding lots more. So, um, yeah, it was I guess that's how I got into it. It was just through friends and I've always been competitive with my mates as well. So that's always, you know, kind of pushes you on when you're with a couple of friends. I think that's mm-hmm. a bit cliched now, isn't it? Like people sort of learning off each other and <laughs> racing against each other. But yeah, that's that's the way it went. Yeah. Was that was that race? Was it a, was it a Mr. Bling race, was it? That is the one. Yeah, Mr. Bling's. Yeah, and that was, he was, that guy was the most enthusiastic race organizer i have ever seen he had a mega box that he would bring down to the race and he would be shouting and screaming and just be so stoked 
about everyone. He didn't care. It wasn't about like for him, it wasn't about who won. It was literally just like everyone was there to have a really good time. His two daughters would, you know, do the race entries. And it was just awesome. It was I, I had so much fun. And I think he used to hold something it was something crazy. Like I think we had like twelve races a year on this yeah, just wow. local hill. Cause he'd run six in the summer and then another six in the winter. And it was just, it was awesome. I, I loved it. It was, you know, that was, I did, I think pretty much my, yeah, my whole first year of racing pretty much was Mr. Bling races. It was, yeah. Wow. Wow. Crazy man. And you know, nice to have something like that on your doorstep. Cause that obviously stoked you for the whole race scene and such an, uh, a good, happy kind of crazy environment around you at that time. It must've helped things. Yeah. I think, I think just, it was fun i think crucially i think if it had been i'd got there and it'd been you know mega mega serious i think i don't know maybe I, maybe i would have loved it as well but i think there's just it being a fun atmosphere it kind of reduced the pressure and it was more about just you know how fast could you go down the hill it wasn't so much about who won or whatever it was just cool to see and everyone would stick by at the end to watch the you know the f- really fast boys because at the time uh harry malloy who i'm still really good mates with actually and we used to live like just down the road from each other but him and ollie burton and also nathan viles Mm -hmm. way back but those guys were all full factory riders at the time um racing world cups and they were at the races and uh brendan used to turn up every now brendan fairclough every now and again would turn up with his brother christian and they, you know, it which is mad to like a little 40 second, 30 second race. It's like yeah. top level pros sort of turning up. Um, but yeah, it made the scene, you know, it made the scene really cool. And, you know, I got to watch basically some of my heroes racing bikes down my local hill. So you sort of knew what was possible after watching that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. Did it ever come to a stage when you had grown up obviously and and were a bit older that you thought you wanted to do this thing full time did you want to become a professional mountain biker um i think that yeah definitely happened a bit later on um i definitely wanted to ride bikes for a living i mean i think that's you know any kid's dream is to well certainly for me from growing up pretty much sport was my life from when a very young age and the dream was just to be a professional athlete. I didn't, I wouldn't say I'd sort of committed to mountain biking until a bit later on, like that that was going to be where I was going down. I, I played squash really competitively and sort of took that very, very seriously until I was about 18. Um, whilst doing the mountain biking, I was still mm. pushing on with the mountain biking, but the just, I was just with school and stuff. I, I ended up putting a much more of a focus on the the training wise i was training for squash and then however that sort of ended up influencing my mountain biking was kind of how it ended up really um, <laughs> but yeah like I, I definitely you know when i hit 18 i think i i realized that i could you know i wasn't too bad at the at mountain biking i was doing all right i'd had some promising results i i wouldn't i didn't have too many wins I, I, it's, it's always been a bit of a something I've always sort of looked back on I didn't win too much I got a couple of podiums and I'd say yeah about 19 it started everything 18 19 things started to click for me um mm-hmm. and mountain biking was like where the direction I kind of wanted to go in for sure yeah yeah and then you were off to uni um 
how did the uni thing affect what you're wanting to do in the mountain bike? Did you did you always feel you wanted to go to university and get a degree and stuff, or were you kind of were you thinking of trying to do the full time mountain bike thing? Um, I think the the university thing was kind of just that was the way my parents had you know the way we'd always talked about it was you go to school you know, finish your, do yeah. your levels and then the next progression from that was to do university um and I actually had a really um good tutor at, at, at school um and he sort of realized I think quite early on that my my sport my passion for sport sort of really far outweighed my my passion I, I guess for the university route or like for you know continuing yeah. higher education and so he went and did some research and found a course at the University of Bath um, called sports performance and essentially it was a very exclusive um, degree we only had I think on my course there were only 12 people per year wow um, and you had to be at a, a certain level in sport, um, in your in your sport to get on. And if you were accepted, then you got it was quite low grades to get in, which I think worked for me because I've you know my grades weren't the best. I think at that, mm. point, as I say, my my focus had definitely shifted to towards you know I just wanted to ride my bike and however I could do that revision and all that those kind of things definitely didn't weren't prioritised in my mind, which is. Mm. Um, so it sort of worked out really well and anyway I managed to get into the university but they were amazing as well because from the minute I arrived they um, you know they provided me with a trainer and I was in the Olympic um, basically there's an Olympic training area with all these you know Olympic judo players and because Bath is a um, centre of excellence for sport um and I was training amongst these you know these heroes really these <laughs> you know they knew what training really was um and the university provided me with a trainer um to sort of get me fit and that and then all of my degree was to do with mountain biking so all of my essays everything was downhill mountain biking as an analogy wow. and so it really worked well with my cycling yeah um, wow so yeah, it was kind of that. I I, I say, if anything, the the university. I'm really glad I did it because it kind of just amplified the took took me up to that kind of I guess to the elite level. It it stopped me taking it as like a hobby that I was good at to turned it definitely into like a career path and a sport that I wanted to do full time. Yeah, that's cool, man. It really gives you a vision for what you kind of want to do. Yeah, I think it, I think it was rare, um, really. I, I I think I, I definitely didn't expect the degree to be so specific to my sport. Um, it, but it was it was so cool. Um, you know, everything was ana- analyzing what different types of training would ben- best benefit mountain biking. Which actually, in terms of um, you know, like scientifically accredited uh, journals there's not that much research into downhill specifically as a sport yeah okay um, there's lots in you know road cycling and all these other sort of more olympic sports because obviously there's more money in those um but in downhill specifically there wasn't that much so it was actually really refreshing for me i kind of got to take my own approach and then i was using using you know journals from road cycling using journals from bmxing and sort of 
forming my own um, sort of researched opinion on how it was best to train for downhill. Um, yeah, and that that really actually sort of showed in my results that that my first year of university, um, I got I think I won I, I won um, Welsh champs uh, at the end of must that would have been twenty nineteen I think it was. Wow. Okay. Um, but it didn't actually show on my because because I wasn't Welsh, I didn't get the jersey, <laughs> which was really unfortunate. Because half my family half my family are actually Welsh, but so I was very upset about that. I wanted the jersey, but uh, yeah, so I won that, um, and yeah, I, I started actually winning races, which I was really happy about. So that was that was really cool um, to see. Yeah. Wow. And you know, isn't it interesting that your your degree kind of pushed you to look at other side of the downhill thing you know what happens when you're on and off the bike and, and everything and it's actually made you a better rider like you know did you think that would actually happen were you hoping that would happen when you were studying no honestly no I, I I kind of always had it in my brain that university my degree if you know when I got a degree it would be a backup I would I at that point I'd said right I want to try and ride professionally and then if that didn't work out it was then I had my degree as a backup plan Mm. um and my parents were really supportive in that they kind of you know they saw the passion and they were like look we know you want to you know go full time and we can see that you're you know you're invested in it as much as anything really I mean it was you know it's a bit of an it turns into a bit of an obsession um (laughs) you know I love love everything to do with two wheels and so yeah they were fully supportive of it um but yeah definitely wasn't expecting the yeah the performance to I guess yeah my my in my analysis for my performance to sort of increase the way it did and sort of my my result it definitely my results to change but that was really good yeah class man class now when we were chatting on the phone a few days ago uh we were chatting about well you were telling me that you used to work for MTV beds um who I had on the podcast back in episode 120, uh, Richard Welford there. Um, so it's funny, man. And you were telling me you actually set that that interview up kind of thing, right? Yeah. So I ended up, I, I went out to, to Morzine. Um, I think for the first time I went out there on holiday when I was 17 um, w- with a company called Riders Retreat, um, which is now no longer running. But yeah, I, I went there and I met the, the guy who ran the company and he saw me riding and was like, Oh, we, you know, we'd really like you to, um, maybe, uh, come out here and work for us when you're, when you're finished with school. And so I hit 18 and I had a year out after school before I went into, um, before I went into uni and I thought, okay, well, I want to ride my bike, but I also need to, you know, work. That's kind of the point of a year out is to, you know, work Mm. and, (laughs) <laughs> earn some money so I did yeah. that I worked, I worked for a um an accountancy firm um for the whole winter to get some money together and then I went out in the summer and worked for Riders Retreat as a a host of the chalet a chalet host mm-hmm. um and I was definitely I was the youngest 
I was I was well I was very very young I was 18 I, I didn't really know how to look after myself let alone you know other <laughs> guests and stuff and I think anyone who's listening to this who might have stayed with me would definitely agree I didn't really know what I was doing I was definitely making sure everyone had a good time but I wouldn't say I was you know providing the food in the best way I should have done and you know <laughs> the house was definitely not as tidy as it could have been um but yeah, you know, I had a, an amazing time and, you know, riding those kind of trails on a daily basis and using having chairlift access for, you know, two and a half months, that wow. definitely, you know, <laughs> riding those kind of trails is insane. And um, I definitely learned a lot doing that. But anyway, bringing it back, I then, while I was out there, I met um, Rich and he was, I think he was living there at the time um and we you know we went riding together and um I did a video for him for for some advertising for M2 beds at the time and that was kind of all I thought of it and then I saw him I then went out again to Morzine the following year after my first year of uni um to live out there just but it made sense I was racing the IXS cups and sort of chasing UCI points and it actually worked out cheaper to base myself in Morsey and in my van and then travel to the races from there than it did to sort of be flying back and forth from home. So yeah. I did that. Um, and yeah, Rich sort of, we got chatting, we did some rides together and he was like, look, would you like to work for me? You've got the experience having worked for the other company and you know, we, it'd be really cool to maybe chat to you when you get back to the UK. So I did that. Um, and we, he said, yeah, we'd love to have you, have you out to out to Morzine and then second year of uni I went back out to Morzine there's a common theme here I kept returning once once you've done a season in Morzine it's uh, incredibly addictive um and I, I went out and I worked for M2E Beds um and Richard sort of mentioned to me at the time just before the start of the season he'd said look if this goes uh goes well um I'm looking to have another person um, work for me on a full-time basis sort of back in the back in the UK um, and I, I said oh that's that sounds amazing um, so I did the summer and then I did my third year at uni um, and after my third year of uni Rich sort of said look do you want to come and work for me so I did the following summer again and then yeah went back and worked in the Bristol office um moved I, I was luckily I was obviously at the uni of Bath anyway so I was already fairly settled over in the west west country um and yeah ended up working for him for I think it was two nearly it must have been two nearly three years um mm. for like it sort of in the off on an in an office based scenario sort of on a full-time scenario mm-hmm. um had loads of laughs we went to we went everywhere we went traveled all these amazing places and I sort of you know having had a wide range of racing experience I sort of suggested the new areas like Schladming and um Leergang which obviously for me as I'd raced them they were like the most amazing trails I'd ever ridden so I was like yeah we should definitely go there that's like run a holiday camp there that's amazing um and yeah, like I, I was doing their social media. That was my role within the company was social media and marketing. And obviously a big thing of social media and marketing now is podcasts. And you obviously 
came up as one of the the big ones and uh so yeah I, I end up emailing you and that's I guess how that that uh podcast ended up happening yeah wow isn't it amazing you know and I think we touched on this when we were chatting before but you know mountain biking's a it's a pretty big sport a pretty big there's a lot of people do it you know but as you were saying in the core kind of I don't want to say insiders but everybody kind of knows somebody who knows somebody you know what i mean that you kind of everybody knows each other it's really quite cool it's very much a very tight community but it's very welcoming and at the same time yeah i mean it's it's for a big sport it is very sort of um intertwined everyone as you say knows someone who's in the industry who knows another guy and it's it's cool i, I love it because you've got the you know that this is where that whole kind of the local bike shop everyone has their their one guy that they go to regularly because they help everyone helps everyone out and i think that that's that's really cool but it's amazing certainly as you say at the core side of things in the industry how the branches are all intertwined across you know from media to components to whole bike companies and how they work with each other and yeah it's, it's amazing yeah it's such a cool cool uh community scene to be involved in um and more zine i'm sure you've seen it change like it's basically the mountain biking capital of europe now right yeah i mean that when i first went when i was 16 it was like a super quiet town um it still had amazing tracks i mean you know i'm they, they, they definitely had awesome tracks, but it, I mean, it was, they, for instance, Super Morzine is now famous for all of its amazing flow trails. I was there the first year they put the first blue flow trail in and like that hill had nothing other than that, that trail. And now mm. it's like, now I go there and there's, you know, seven or eight trails down there, big jumps and it's the same across every single hill. And as you say, like it's, it is definitely now the, the capital of, of Europe for riding bikes for sure yeah it's weird uh i've never biked there but i've snowboarded there a couple of times um and the last time i was there i was into mountain biking at that stage and i knew they had quite a good scene there and you know you're going down on these pistes and you're trying to find these mountain bike runs and stuff but you can never find them you know you can never see them yeah you go searching for like a mound and you're like oh is that tabletop oh sweet yeah you see, see this little snowy mound and turns out it's just a tree or something like that amazing that's uh that's always fun yeah classic uh so you get um you decide then you, you make a decision when you're at mtb beds that you want to chase this enduro thing full time what made you go down the enduro route over the the downhill scene or do you still do do both um so i yeah i i when i first started with m2 beds i was a downhiller through and through like hardcore loved i had a v10 and uh i was like this is the best all i wanted to do was literally get a chairlift to the top i think i think morzine had had an influence on me pedaling was definitely not in my uh you know book of yeah. what, was, what was fun to do on bikes <laughs> um, and i think i just had got a bit burnt out from the racing to be honest i think i I'd spent a good couple of years getting really close to the UCI points. Um, and every year they were bumping the points up. I think when I first started chasing UCI points, you needed one point and I, I didn't get it. And then the second year you needed 20, mm. which was a big jump. But I actually, that year, I think I ended up with 17 or 18 points. Right. I was like two points off having enough to go. 
and I was like, oh, so close. And then um, the following year, they made it 30. And I think now it's like 40 points yeah. you need to go. And it was, and I, and things with like British cycling were quite awkward as well. Like you had to send all these out. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, there's lots of uh, stories out there where riders have sort of been missed off the world champs and like not, not world champs, but like GB selection um, because they haven't filled out the right form. And I think, I just didn't end up filling out the right forms and stuff like that. So I'd never actually end up going to it. And I think I just mm. got like, you know, my, my mum and dad were amazing. They were putting, you know, a, a lot of money into, into my racing, um, at the time, um, to travel really just, I was going to places like Poland to get points, um, and Portugal and all sorts of places yeah, chasing, yeah. These, chasing these points around Europe. Um, and these were qualifier events, right? Yes, they were like yeah. they like UC, the UCI have like category two and category one races, um, and you yeah you went to them and if you you know it basically would turn out to be a mini World Cup. I mean, it, you, mm. I, I went to Poland and it was the European Championship, which it doesn't get any media, but you turn up there and you know you'd have all, all of these these World Cup boys would be there getting their extra points, just topping their points up so that they made sure they were in A practice or B practice, and you'd have mm-hmm. me sitting there going, I just need points, just I need like four points just to get in to the World <laughs> Cup or whatever. And uh, yeah, so it was it was really cool experience. I mean, I've ridden some amazing places, but I think I just got a bit burnt out with it. I just was like, oh, this is I'm getting so close every time, and I'm not. I feel like I'm a good rider, but I'm just not really getting the opportunities. Um, anyway, and then it was like an it was a weird, it was an off season, and one of my my really good friends uh, from uni, who raced downhill with me, he'd like never really done too much racing, was really fast, but just never done too much racing, and he just decided that, you know, he'd seen everyone riding on trail bikes, and he was like, actually, for what I want to do when he's in the UK all the time, so I don't really need a downhill bike, I can go and get. A, trail bike and ride that up hills and then ride down them again um and i had a trail bike for for training um that i think i was sponsored by um well santa cruz and then i i ended up buying that yt jeffsy um Mm -hmm. and um i my mate just said to me he sent me a text and i i was training to do downhill for another year and my mate just texted me and was like oh I've seen this, uh, this, this EWS are doing these, uh, wildcard entries for Madeira. Do you want to, do you want to enter it? And I thought, yeah, go on. And I've not, you know, what well, that'd be cool. Cool to do as a little <laughs> thing. And it'll be, I just figured it would be extra training. And I didn't, I, I hadn't like Enduro was still new at that point, And I was like, oh, it can't be that difficult. It, it's just downhill. I was like, I, I'll smoke them when I get to the downhills. I, I know what I'm doing on a bike like type thing. Again, probably uh, not, I, maybe not arrogance, but just I just didn't really understand what it was at the time. Mm. Um, anyway, my friend, it turned out, entered the wrong race or wrong category or something and got declined. And oh, I, no. But I then got accepted. <laughs> and so I ended up having entered this world this world series enduro race having never done an enduro in my life um and I'd done no training and I was sitting there panicking going this is this this could actually go wrong um and I did I think a grand total I think I, I, I like six 30 mile road rides which to me 
in my brain I think they might have been 30 kilometers I think it might mm. be 30k r- road rides and in my mind that was I am fit for enduro I can do 30k road rides it must be all right and I got to this race and I have never been so wrong in my yeah. life like the we, I think we end up doing two I think it was like 2000 vertical um it was one of the really, they it, at the time it was one of those really hard mm. they, they, they 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 put a lot of vertical in it was a, it was a really physical race and I think that was another mistake I I I'd not read they used to have a star system I think they still do um where it goes like grades the race based on like physicality technicality and distance or something like that and I think I thought it was a five star technicality which I thought would be in my favor for the downhill yeah but it actually was a five star physicality which was the opposite of what I wanted um and I went into a dark place. That's pretty much all we need to say about the matter. I went into a very, <laughs> I got, I got, I got the race done. I, I got round and I was so happy to just have made it round alive. Um, I was actually going round with Rich Payne, who's now works for GMBN. Right, uh, right, yeah. And he was, you know, uh, taking it ultra seriously. And I had just op- entered this race on a laugh and I was like, what am I doing? I mean, what am I playing at? Um, and I think I end up, I think it was 117th mm-hmm. or something like that, which actually isn't that bad. But for my first one, but it was, you know, I was expecting, I think I in my brain, I had it that I'd be in like the top 70, top 60, which mm-hmm. as with hindsight is definitely not, uh, was was not realistic. Um, but I got the bug, you know, I, it was, it was so cool it was refreshing to ride there the trails we rode there were amazing um and i just i liked the i liked the physicality i i don't i sort of discovered that about myself i actually really enjoyed the pain of like going up the hills and grinding and putting myself in like a a dark place on the bike sort of physically i think i really enjoyed that um so yeah i kind of got the got the bug and then that was i still did a bit of downhill but my focus then sort of switched pretty quickly to okay right let's do these these world series races yeah wow did you find a difference in the atmosphere or the riders you know from the ews to the uci thing was is there any difference there or mountain bikers just mountain bikers no like massively i I, like maybe it's just in like a racing side of things because i've got a lot of friends who race downhill and you know they're not like they're not like they are at races but you know you get to the top of a race uh, like a downhill race especially at the you know when you're in elite and things like that or a national race and and people everyone has their headphones on they're set on turbo trainers they're trying to psych each other out it's very quite a cold atmosphere to be honest yeah um whereas at the enduro you're you know the guy who your closest competitor is sat right next to you for two and a half hours up a climb yeah you're not gonna be you know you can't afford to be uh, you know not talking to them or just being like you're not gonna sit in silence for six hours in the saddle and own you know it's just not gonna happen so I guess that removes a lot of that kind of 
potential i guess like competitiveness it's not it's not, it doesn't remove the competitiveness but you just don't end up with any of these sort of oh i don't like that guy or i'm not speaking to that guy you just don't have that it's just everyone gets along and if your mate you're you know the guy who you're competing against gets a flat at the bottom of a run you don't just leave him for dust you help him out and you see if, if you've got a tube or whatever or if he's out of tubes you say oh you, here you go let's help mm-hmm. him out because at the end of the day it's like i will certainly for me i i want to win if i want to beat the, my competitor i want to beat him fair and square i don't want to beat him just because he didn't have a tube and couldn't complete the race or something i'd rather him complete the race and me beat him fair and square type thing mm-hmm. um, yeah it's interesting man you know like you're saying two and a half hour climbs now when we see coverage of the ews stuff on red bull tv or wherever it is um wherever you watch it they don't really go into the climbs you know you just get to see highlights of the downhill stuff but are the climbs can the climbs be that long i think the long yeah i mean we we've definitely done two hour two hour climbs that are two hour plus climbs and they normally allow like two and a half hours to get to the top of a some of the bigger climbs um i'm trying to think of like a specific i think or logs um in france in like 2018 we had a two must be like a two hours 10 or something two hours yeah, wow it's it they they allow a lot of time but that's normally your time between finishing the run and getting to the top now whether that is all climbing it's probably an hour and 45 an hour and 50 of climbing but you've obviously got to get to the climb and you know get your breath back after your run and then get yourself prepared at the top of the run for your for then dropping in again um so it's brutal they are some there's some <laughs> there's, there's some big climbs for sure i i, I think as you say, it doesn't really get televised, but it is, it's a really physical, it, it, it's really physical, definitely. Yeah. Um, like, and- like, this is the difference, right? So, from for a weekend warrior like myself, watching that on TV, a two and a half climb for one stage, like, a weekend warrior would be lucky to go out for two and a half hours a week, never mind have just one climbing stage, you know, and that's how many stages do you do a day? Three? four like three or four like i think you know yeah it adds up <laughs> it's crazy man yeah i mean we wouldn't to be honest i don't want to i don't want to you know make out this harder than it is you you know we for instance uh, uh, the best example is finale ligura from the beach to the nato base is a two-hour climb and they've mm. you know we have done that before and that's you know that you'll do that but then you know you'll probably have another couple of climbs after that but the majority of your climbing will be done in that that big climb but it is you know as you say like most people don't go and just sit in the saddle and go up a hill for two hours i mean i i I don't because and this is one of those things where it's, it's actually incredibly difficult to train you have to really be precise with your training because and it's one of the main advantages for me of living near Wales is Wales does have some nowhere near to like, you know, a two hour climb, but it has some really decent climbs and you can get some really decent elevation um, in your legs, um, which, you know, is it's that's another it's an advantage. If you live in Finale Ligura and you can go and pedal up one hill and do, you know, a thousand meters vertical in one climb then that's the best preparation you can kind of get for racing the enduro because that mm. is what you would do. Um, so it does make a huge difference where you are. I mean, Surrey Hills, as I as I would say, like trying to do a do a kilometer vertical at Surrey Hills uh, is it, it's a hard task just purely because you just yeah. just trying to get the elevation is is difficult. Um, 
Wow, man, that sounds that sounds brutal. Sounds very tough indeed. Uh, let's chat a little bit. So you're you're going on to that. You're you're planning to do well. You were planning to go full time this year, right? Uh, well, 2020, but obviously with the COVID thing, that didn't work out. Um, you got a few races under your belt, right? Yeah, I managed to do the season. Uh, what was what was left of it? I think we did two stages in Zermatt, and then we did. Uh, what did we do? Two stages in Zermatt. We did four stages in uh, Pietra Ligura mm. and five in Finale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you know we got a total of like twelve stages raced or something. Yeah. Right. Did you did you like the new setup because they done it differently, right? They they did like a race on a Friday and a race on a Sunday or something. Like that was it set up slightly different. Yeah, we had so we had a pro only. Uh, race in Pietra the week the week before um, and then on that race we did like Friday practice had Saturday off and then race Sunday right um, but I think the reason for that was because it was a really physical race we did like a, it was a lot of pedaling and it was I think it was 65 kilometers <sighs> so it was a big that was a big race but it was a pro only race so that was um you know that's understandable at the end of the day they can set what they like when it's a pro only race that's mm. they can kind of set the set the level um but it was like it was a really physical race so we kind of needed that time off because of covid we couldn't get the shuttles on the practice day so we end up pedaling the race on the friday and then pedaling it again on the sunday so that oh. extra day off sort of was needed to give the legs a bit of a uh, bit of recovery yeah wow dude that's tough um okay so let's chat about the privateer thing a little bit because you're going full-time this year um into it can we chat a little bit about sponsors how you fund yourself all that kind of thing because it's not an easy thing to do and i want to chat about the dirt fund project and, and what they have done for you um but tell us a little bit about your sponsors first of all so i don't ride for any team um i you know i'm a privateer i i i get my you know i I fund my get my own way around the races um but i get some amazing support from santa cruz uh ride fox uk uh maxis tires um crank brothers i kind of have you know and pt's products i i've i've built up my own um sponsor list essentially um i've got some amazing sponsors and I've stuck with them for a long time. Um, I think I've, I've been with Crank Brothers now for four or five years um, and they've been amazing. Um, and yeah, like just had some really, really good support from those guys. Um, I've had some financial backing um, from some of my sponsors as well. Um, which, so is, which is amazing, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not enough for me to, you know, be completely self-reliant but it's you know just to have any financial support in the in you know in this day and age with the racing is is amazing so yeah i love it um and then i've uh you know i've had i do a bit of uh, graphic design stuff on the side um and then crucially my parents are you know being really amazing and they've they've you know helped support me um to help pay for some of my travel costs and and races and things like that um and then yeah as as a a massive one for this year is the dirt fund project those guys have come on board and you know they've given me literally financial support and that's the you know the really it's a huge expense i I don't think people 
kind of understand how much it costs to go and do a full year's racing um yeah. it's kind of crazy yeah it's it's amazing listen people don't think about it but when you have to do it you've got your entrance fees you've got your accommodation you've got your travel you've got fuel you've got your food it is massive man massive yeah you know so you need it and at the privateer level you know it's very difficult to support yourself just by physically racing like you say you do graphic design as a as a side project like you need something like that right it's very hard to fund yourself just through this alone yeah i mean you i as i say i worked for m2 beds for a number of years um as well like that was kind of i I was working full-time whilst then racing as well um but it's yeah it's just you you can't the 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 problem comes with you can race to a very very high level whilst doing a job it takes a lot of commitment um you know you need to wake up early super early go to the gym before work and then you you know you're doing stuff afterwards and then every weekend you are out on your bike and you can get yourself to a you know i would say a really high level um but you know once you get to a certain point you're competing against guys who spend every single day out on their bike and they also their bikes are in pristine condition and you know they're getting to these these venues like two weeks um ahead of or a week ahead of the race and just getting themselves acclimatized you know they they can afford to do that um an example would be i i rocked up to whistler on the day I got my, my flight got in at 9 PM the day before the first practice round for the EWS. Um, and I got to Whistler at 11:30, fell asleep, got massive jet lag, woke up at three in the morning. So I had like four hours sleep if that like three and a half hours sleep, but then was wide awake because of just the time zone difference and then raced the entire race weekend having basically doing that whilst then trying to work out how to sleep for longer periods of time or whatever and it's just you you know your your brain takes your brain a long time to adjust let alone your body and things and so yeah you if you want to be at that higher level you have to commit so hard to you have to basically commit full time um to it if you want to sort of get that shot of being up there with the top guys yeah definitely and then you got to cook for yourself you got to feed yourself you got to do all your own mechanical stuff right so it's crazy you got to know everything about bikes really you can't you can't be going to stores here and there asking them to fix this and fix that you need to be able to do this stuff yourself yeah yeah you've got to you've got to have a basic understanding i mean i think that's one of the crucial things with enduro as well though is you know you have to have an understanding of mechanics in enduro because if something goes wrong on the hill you have to know how to fix it so i think that's one of the good things anyway because even the top guys if they get a puncture or i don't know they something goes wrong on their bike they aren't allowed external assistance Mm. they have to learn how to fix it so it's quite cool in that way because that kind of levels the playing field a little bit but then at the same time as you say in the evenings those top guys are getting their bikes stripped and rebuilt fork serviced you know their bike is come the next day of racing or after practice their bike is good as new again whereas yours is you're sitting there at night i mean the number of times i've been sat up till you know 11 30 at night 12 o'clock at night trying to seat new tires ahead of the next <laughs> ahead of race day and having them not go up properly and not having a tubeless pump and oh 
god yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you're sleepless night doing that and you, you're panicking and god yeah it's just all those extra stresses that just and you, you say like food and make sure you got your food cooked and you've got all your snacks ready for the following day and all of these extra things that just sort of play on your mind i think is the yeah big... where does the commitment come from to do that kind of thing it's a lot of pressure it's a you know you you could be you could be sitting back working for MTB Beds there, Richard and the gang are doing really well. You could have a good career there. Like, where's the motivation to leave something like that and go at this full time? I think I've just, as I say, like my my parents, both from a very, you know, from when I was a very young age, they've always, you know, pushed me to just try my best at whatever I try. And I guess with mountain biking, I know I haven't reached my best yet. I know I've still got, you know, so much more to give and I know that I can be, you know, a, a really good racer. And I, I think that that you kind of, it's an addiction really. You, you, I want to be better. I always want to better myself when I go out for a ride as much as, you know, even with it's with my mates, I want to try and hit that corner faster I want to try and do the jump better or I would you know there's always something it's always just trying to push myself and that's not that I don't get enjoy it's not like I don't go out for rides to enjoy myself it's just that is what I get enjoyment from yeah succeeding or like bettering myself and so I guess that's the fire to you know I want to see how far I can push myself and how good I can get at the sport and I uh, you know I just don't want to look back on you know when I'm 60 whatever I can you know I can work in an office when I'm 60 or you know behind the desk when I'm 60 but I don't want to look back and be like you know I didn't I what if what if I'd what if mm-hmm. I kept going with the cycling or what if I you know not taken that job and I you know taken a different sponsorship deal or done something different I don't want to have that and I think you know I know I'm in a fortunate position where you know my parents can you know help me out to allow me to do that but as you say for a privateer I think yeah you definitely have to have the motivation to do all the training still and I you know it is a huge thing but you have to want it yeah Uh, definitely definitely like you're sacrificing a lot to do it you know for sure yeah I mean like as you say like I was working for a really good company um had a really good had a good job and and um you know that was it was all going well and and I you know as I say like I wouldn't it's not like I didn't enjoy my time working there but all of that was you know I was working so then I could have them I had the money or I had the time to then go and ride my bike and so the way I look at it is if I can work out a way or if I have however hard I have to work to make you know make it so what I do for a living is what I want to do on the weekend and that's I guess for me winning that's like success and that's where my you know my motivation comes from that's what I want to do yeah for sure man for sure when you travel to some of the areas that MTB beds are set up will Richard give you a free bed oh I don't know I think I'd have to have to have a chat with him I, I'd hope so maybe yeah I don't know we'd, we'd have to have a chat I haven't haven't seen him in a while maybe uh Maybe I'll have a chat with him. We'll see. Yeah, that would be that would be that would be certainly that would certainly help towards some of my privateer costs for sure. Exactly, man. Exactly. Well, let's chat a little bit about the Dirt Fund Fund project then. Um, how did you initially hear about the guys? Um, I think it was on. Now let me get this right. I think it was on Ben. No, uh, 
I want to say Ben Cathro's Instagram story or on Joe Connell's. I it was either one of the two. It was either Joe Connell yeah. or Ben Cathro's Instagram story, and I just saw it. It popped up, and I thought, oh, what is what is the Dirt Fun project? So I clicked on the uh, clicked on the link, um, read through it, and then went on their website. And you know, it just seemed like it was such an. Uh, it was so small when I first saw it. I was like, what is this thing? So I I was like, this is this looks amazing um so i just dropped uh dropped daniel an email and just said like you know what what is it all about really just to find out what it was a mm-hmm. bit more about it um and he sort of gave me an explanation and said that they just um supported their first rider um and that was pretty much the end of the conversation really and i was like that sounds amazing um and then i saw the crowdfunding side of things came up um and so I thought, well, if I was a, you know, regardless, if I was a privateer, that would be, you know, like it, whoever they pick as the privateer for the next giveaway, that would be incredible. If it was for me, you know, if I got that, I'd be like, that would be genuinely a game changer towards my training or towards, you know, my racing. So I, I donated some money to their to the crowdfunding uh, page and just that would again, like that was sort of it was just sort of on Instagram. I, I, that was all I really saw of it. Um, and then Daniel got in touch with me on probably three weeks ago now, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of, it was amazing, amazing uh, sort of how the conversation unfolded. He was like, Fergus, how's it going? And I was like, great. And then he was like, are you English or Welsh? And uh, I, I was like, I'm English. And he was like, <laughs> only reason for asking is because, so on PTs, I have a um, sort of a, an athlete uh, bio. And because I ride so much in South Wales, I think people know me for having ridden in South Wales. So I think um, PTs are written South Wales Shredder. So obviously it made me sound like I might have been from Wales. But anyway, so I told him I was from England. And then he literally just said to me, congratulations, you've been chosen um the to be awarded the money from the dirt fund project as the sort of third athlete um and had my mind blown to be honest that was yeah insane like that i mean it's amazing what they're doing and it the honestly my my day the motivation alone but like my day went from like you know i was in lockdown had kind of been getting to me a little bit and i was sat on my t- i was getting over, very much over sitting on my turbo trainer and like just the regardless of the money the motivation and sort of the elation that i got from that was insane um to know that there were other people out there who you know thought that i was worthwhile investing in or like you know that it was worth i was you know one of those people worthy of being selected it was incredible yeah like it's amazing what they do and i had i interviewed daniel for the podcast last week so if you're listening to this episode it would be last week's episode but um yeah so what blew me away is they've only been going since late november or something so like you're talking three months kind of thing yeah like i mean it's it's crucially it is a group of friends who came together having watched Ben Cathro's uh, sort of what he did with his, with the pink bike privateer uh, videos um, and thought it was an amazing concept. And they've literally, and as you say, in the case of in the, in, 
you know the time of three months they've managed to create this insane this you know this incredible i want to call it a foundation but that is a project that um you know they've turned yeah they've turned what was whatsapp chat into something real and it's in it's incredible and and the difference i don't think i could ever convey and i don't i'm sure the uh you know callum and the other other riders can't really won't be able to convey how much difference it actually makes to to us and to our training costs and all of that lot but it's not just that as you say it's like you know what that gives us motivation wise knowing that there are other people other than you know our parents and stuff like that that you know think we're we can we can do it i think that's 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 for me the big thing mm-hmm. yeah it's an amazing idea and and the guys fund you a thousand pounds um to go towards your your racing costs and whatever um but you know it it's such it's such an unbelievable idea that a group of friends can come together and give back so much you know, we all like giving back. We're going and doing trail days and, and stuff like that and repairing courses and trails. And we, we all, and I think this is a good theme through the mountain bike community. We do like to give back. And it's amazing just to see not only people donating money to the Dirt Front Project, but there's brands getting involved as well and, and donating stuff, and um, which can then be raffled and, and things like this. So there's ways there's ways to get the money out of out, a out product. Um but yeah, dude, like it's so good, and I think, I think the Dirt Front Project guys and Daniel and the lads, they will do so well. I think that is it's only the tip of the iceberg for that. I think it'll be so so successful in the near future. Yeah, massively. I mean, they, as you say, like it's really cool that that the mountain biking community are so inclusive and everyone tries to give back. But it's one thing to you know, as you say, like go and help out with the trails and things like that, but to come together in a completely unselfish way and just give back to essentially the guys who are potentially the up and coming um you know races of of the future and Mm -hmm. it's awesome to see new companies coming on board and i think that's where if if anything that i could you know if i could sort of tell any of the companies any of my sponsors or potential other company bike companies out there that is has there's so much value for them in investing in these younger guys and giving a bit of financial support because it's it really not you know there's not everyone can afford to go to these races but they would perform amazingly and there's there's so much value in that to a to a bike company or to a potential product sponsor um in getting that kind of get giving them some financial support and i think it's amazing um yeah, can't be can't be underestimated how much of a difference it makes. Yeah, amazing. And you know, the funny thing is, if you think about it, right, it's probably your the majority of the people donating are probably your competitors. So your competitors are funding or or people are funding their competitors to get this to get this grant, this fund. You know, so you wouldn't find that in tennis or golf or, you know, it just shows you the kind of community the mountain bike thing has, uh, you know, just running through its veins, man. Yeah, I mean, certainly in my case, so I'm good friends with uh, a local Irishman, Dan Wolf. Yeah. Um, and he actually donated £250 towards my, uh, towards my give out, my payout. 
you know, and I'm good friends with him. And that, to me, that just blows my mind, you know, that one of my, my good friends and yeah, as you say, a fellow competitor, someone who I'm, you know, essentially striving to beat, um, would do that and be, you know, generous enough to give that is insane. Um, and it's, you know, just shows the sort of strength of the mountain bike community, but you know, the generosity of people as well, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's unreal, man. It's unreal. Um, so what, what are you hoping for this 2021 race season? Have you got any goals set aside? Have you anything you want to achieve? Um, so I've been working on one of the things I've been working with both my coach and also like sort of Ben at the Strength Factory and also Ollie Morris um, at ProRide as coaching is trying to be less um, result-based motivated. So okay. trying to focus more on, you know, riding and doing a good performance and what that whatever that performance is, we'll see. But um then folks you know focusing a lot on just riding well and being you know riding how I know I can ride and if I ride the way I know I can ride then the the results should come but you know I'd I'd really like to be trying to crack the top 50 I think like this year that would be for me I think that last year I didn't really do myself justice and I think that I you know I have the just because of the virus and everything it was such a weird weird year training wise and stuff and Mm -hmm. I know that this year the training's gone really well so far and the bike's feeling really good and obviously working with Ben and Ollie as well like I'm definitely the speed's coming so you know yeah I'd love to crack the top 50 um at the EWS I think that would be amazing Um, yeah that would be awesome yeah, well, Ben will get you there physically. I certainly wouldn't want to be training under him. Uh, <laughs> the man, uh, yeah, the man loves loves the pain. He loves it. He loves putting me putting me through my paces for sure. I, as I said earlier, I kind of have a a weird enjoyment for it as well. So it's yeah, it's a good combo. <laughs> I know he calls his business the Strength Factory, but it maybe should be called the Pain Factory. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. There's one thing for sure: I will never ever. Um, be lacking in press ups that's for sure we uh <laughs> we do press ups for days <laughs> yeah, class stuff now i've had ben on the podcast a few times i think now actually and we've done a you know a listener question and answer and thing and all with him so he, he knows his stuff he's he's definitely tuned in but um yeah you, you better you better be prepared if you go to ben for a bit of training yeah for sure for sure <laughs> now uh before i let you go fergus um Tell me some of the some of your favourite places you've you've ridden abroad. So you've read basically the capital of Europe, um, and you've read more or less the capital of mountain biking and the world side of things in Whistler. Like, how did you find Whistler? Honestly, mind blowing. Like, I've been I'd been dreaming about going to Whistler since I was thirteen. As I say, I watched that seasons video, and I think my favourite like clip from that segment from that is the whistler segment where all the athletes come together and do laps of a-line and i sort of I've, I've had multiple dreams about riding a-line i think that's uh safe to safe to be said so it was insane um like don't get me wrong like i i think for really natural and rough terrain morzine has probably clinched it like they have mm. some insane single tracks and really steep tracks but as a bike park whistler is just fun like the whole time i was i was doing laps of the bike park until 8 p.m like the lifts don't shut till 8 and they do and it's just insane like you can ride bikes all day 
and yeah. then you know go and have a drink or whatever and then go ride bikes again the next day and I did that for like nine days straight by the time I finished I, I when I was leaving I was absolutely shattered but it was like some of the best riding I've ever done for sure yeah. and as is the black cool mountain length for the bikes as well um so it's not it's it well, it's not really yeah so black comb isn't like open none of the lifts you can't take bikes in them as far well when i went there you weren't allowed to take bikes in them but there are there's a track called now let me get this right i always call it black diamond but it's not it's called purple oh uh, dark crystal that's the one dark right crystal. okay and it is up on black Home mountain um it's an official trail um as far as i'm aware <laughs> um and it's like this it's super loamy um with like these sort of what well, i'm sure you've seen like these sort of really open rock faces mm. um but that's on on blackcomb side but the, as a, it's not open as a part of the bike park which i found surprising because they they creek side which is kind of the other direction to which yeah. that's all now been opened and they've done loads and loads of work opening up the lift system and doing more trails down there we end up racing down quite a lot on that side actually when we raced right uh, and there were some amazing tracks down there really really fun ones wow wow yeah it does it does look amazing to be honest um so what about what about europe where's your favorite place to visit in europe oh favorite place in europe I think bike dependent. I 100% like I if I had a downhill bike, I would ride Schladming all day long. That place is so cool. It's like so quick, fast, top to bottom. It's just rough and it, I I've never ridden a motocross bike on on like a track or anything, but it's what I can only imagine riding a motocross bike would uh, my bike would feel like um it's so quick and it's it's yes yeah, an awesome feeling but then like just generally i would say madeira would have to be on my yeah. list i think that would have to be it. it's just the different terrains and the just the climate just everything like the views everything there is just in- incredible really um, yeah it's amazing and i think we'll see a lot of these snow resorts opening up to mountain biking now in the summer i think it has to happen snow seasons seem to be getting shorter and you know so i think they have to adapt and uh, make the thing you know financially viable they're going to have to open up to mountain bikers but it's good it's good for us right more more destinations to go to put on the bucket list yeah it just i think it just it makes sense like if you've got chairlifts in the resort anyway you've already you know the expense of the resort is putting in the the physical ability to get people up and down the hill right and all of that all of the you know the the people who run the lifts and all of that that's like sort of the main financial cost obviously and then you got running costs but you know digging the trails and all of that lot is just an investment and it as you say like being able to then have a year-round facility as opposed to something that is only open for what is becoming a shorter and shorter season doesn't really make sense and yeah i mean I rode, there's another place called Canazé, which is, we raced, uh, we went to for an EWS and I'd never heard of it in my life. And I get in Northern Italy and small little ski resort that they have opened up for mountain biking, done some, you know, at the moment there's not too many trails, but the trails are growing there for sure. And um, 
it's an incredible place it's amazing like the, the tracks there are amazing the town's really cool they've got little gelato shops and all sorts of things so yeah just the more of these little places that sort of pop up and start doing mountain biking the better really yeah it's cool it's the industry's got a good future ahead of it you know i think it is really healthy at the minute yeah it's i mean it's super healthy and actually as well like the uk scene is is well it is amazing it's it's booming the i think lockdowns helped more people are going out and digging trails and the trail centers are getting better i think mountain biking as a whole is just like globally is just getting bigger and more people are getting into it which i think will only help the sport as as well as obviously just you know everyone getting the more people getting into it the better really the way i look at it yeah definitely no it's good to see for sure um so listen dude i've kept you too long today um i just want to say thanks for coming on the show it was it was a blast to chat with you and uh hear a wee bit more about the privateer side of things um so thanks so much for coming on it was it was a great chat no thank you very much for having me it's been uh yeah it's been really great to chat and you know some awesome things going on and yeah like as you say the privateer thing um massive shout out to the dirt fund project um and also you know to to all my other sponsors who helped me out but yeah like if we can keep growing and keep everything going on the privateer side of things and fingers crossed the racing goes ahead this year then that's uh you know all the better yeah definitely man well listen good luck for 2021 i hope everyone goes well for you and uh, i hope you get to the events do you try and get to all the events or how do you plan that um so yeah my my goal is to go to all of them um just because again like points wise it's just you you know it's it's, it's getting competitive it's you need you need your points to stay in stay mm-hmm. on the the scene and also it's just you know I, I i like racing and if i can fill my calendar with more races obviously costs allowing then the better and and this year especially with uh the way a lot of the races are in europe i think we've only got whistler's the only one that's not in europe this year um or in in, in the uk now i can't say just europe um <laughs> but uh, yeah so like that's but that's amazing uh, so we yeah i'm gonna try and do all of them um as long as i'm allowed as long as we're allowed to go really um just try and work it out that's that's the goal and you know have as many shots of performing as possible awesome brilliant man brilliant well just stick on dan wolf's tail and you'll not do too bad i would think (laughs) yeah i reckon he's going he's going pretty good i reckon these days yeah yeah i think so i'm not sure about that mustache though (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh well you can maybe get him sleeping some night and shave it off eh? (laughs) yeah (laughs) sure <laughs> bro listen fergus thanks so much for coming on and uh, as i say good luck for 2021 i'll be keeping an eye and seeing how things are going for you so uh good luck mate take care on the trails and I'll, I'll speak to you if you win the world champion you have you have to come on podcast again all right for sure for sure thank you very <laughs> much for having me cheers bro all the best that's a wrap for episode 179 i hope you enjoyed that folks and i hope you got a little bit more insight into what it's like for somebody like fergus wanting to become a privateer racer and join the ews circuit there is so much that goes into it you know you have to be skillful you have to be obviously really good on a bike and you have to be fast you also have to believe in yourself and you also need the help from sponsors and guys like the dirt fund project you need all those things to come together to be able to do it so it was great to get a good insight from Fergus and find out a little bit more. 
I just wanted to say, Fergus, thanks so much for coming on the show, bro. I really did enjoy chatting with you, and I certainly will be following you over the 2021 race season. So good luck, mate, and I hope all goes well for you. Now, if you want to know a little bit more about what we chat about, just simply visit the show notes, mtbdicetribe.com, search for Fergus's episode 179, and you will be able to read up a little bit more on what we chat about and also get quick links to Fergus's socials, his sponsors, and a couple of videos there with him as well. Now, if you're enjoying the show and you want to show your support, the best way is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your ratings helps boost us on Apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, don't worry, you can find and subscribe via Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or whatever podcast platform you listen to your shows on. We also have a website, mtb-tribe.com, where you can find the complete back catalogue, listen and download every show from there for free. You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the podcast. You can also get involved on social media. We are at MTB Tribe on Instagram and Facebook. Or if you want to get in contact via the old-fashioned way, you can email me simply by going to info at mtb-tribe.com. I do read all emails and I will get back to you. So that's it for this week, folks. I will be back next week for another exciting episode of the MTB Tribe podcast. But until then, as always, get the bikes out, hit the trails, and stay MTB stoked.